1 Peter chapter 3, and we're just going to look at the first seven verses this evening. And I'll just note, if you are wondering, um, as we're coming into 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, especially women, if you have any resistance to this section, let me say this at the outset, that this is uh, written into a very specific context, so don't write it off because you don't like the word submission. And I hope that tonight it's going to be a great blessing both to the women and to the men of the congregation. It actually has three points of application for the men, two points of application for the women, though the women will notice very quickly that there are six verses to the women and only one verse to the men. And I would remind you that the Apostle Paul deals three times as much with men in Ephesians 5 in that counterpassage. So everybody gets a balanced application in marriage. And we all need to take everything that's said to heart, and we need to take it in proportion to our own needs. So with that in mind, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Peter, you'll note, is attaching this to what he said before. He's already dealt with how Christians can live the Christian life in the the civil sphere, in the state. And he's dealt with how Christians can live the, the Christian life in difficult circumstances in the workplace, under unjust, perhaps under unjust bosses or employers. And now he's talking about how Christians can live the Christian life even when it gets difficult in the realm of the home and specifically in the realm of marriage. And so Peter now writing to these scattered spiritual and physical exiles, as it were. The church is scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Says, now, likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, over the past five or six years, it's become common for well-known preachers to couple with their wives. I think it's a marketing scheme. I I personally believe that it's a marketing scheme on behalf of the publishers, but but the well-known ministers are out in front and they're seen and they are revered and they are almost worshipped in our day. And at some point, the publishers or their agents tell them, a good idea would be for you and your wife to write a book about marriage. And now you'll see over the last five years, that well-known minister after well-known minister together with their wives have turned their attention now after writing many books to writing books about marriage and books about marriage from couples, the man who's in ministry and his wife who has been the woman behind the man in ministry have become exceedingly popular. And what I think is interesting is that in the days of the apostles, 
Um, there was no minister more popular than the Apostle Paul, except perhaps the Apostle Peter. And one thing that you may not often think about is the fact that Peter had a wife. We know that from the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus went and healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, taking her by the hand when she had a fever. And we know that from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he said, do we not have a right to take a sister to be a wife with us? And he mentioned several ministers that took their wives along with them as they went out into their ministries, as they went out and they ministered broadly. And one of those men that the Apostle Paul mentions was Simon Peter, Cephas. Cephas had a wife. The man who is writing this epistle had a wife. And you might think that if God's desire was for ministers to be writing loads of books about Christian marriage, that perhaps the one apostle that we can be sure was married would have written such a book to a church. He would have talked about all the difficulties that he and Mrs. Peter had in marriage. He would have talked about all the challenges that she had because I am sure if you ask my wife if I'm a difficult man to live with that Simon Peter, who most of us feel so closely aligned with, was probably at times a difficult man to live with. You can imagine that Mrs. Simon Peter could have probably written that book, married to a difficult man, married to an apostle who's on the road a lot. And I wonder, as we look at a passage like this, how much of Peter's own marital experience and the conversations that he had with his wife and her talking about how difficult it was to have him gone so much and her talking about how difficult it was to keep up the house and to tend to the needs of the saints there when he was off being beaten while he was preaching the gospel and how difficult it was worrying about whether he was going to come home at night. I can imagine Simon Peter had conversations with his wife that in some way play into what we're reading in this section. But what's interesting is that Simon Peter doesn't talk about his marriage He doesn't talk about his own experiences or the experiences of his wife. Well, I have no doubt that they lay behind some of the things that he says in this section. But he actually appeals to Abraham and to Sarah. Now, why, if the Apostle Peter was the only Apostle who was married, why, if the Apostle Peter was the only Apostle who knew experientially, to our knowledge, What were some, perhaps, of the difficulties in marriage? Did he not appeal to himself, but he appealed to the marriage of Abraham and Sarah? I think it's because Peter is continuing to carry this idea of believers being exiles and pilgrims. He's carrying this idea of believers being sojourners, traveling through this world. And I think that what Peter is doing is he appeals back to that first great marriage that is highlighted in the Bible that was itself a physical journey. Sarah obeyed Abraham when he said, God has told us to pick up our tents and to move. Sarah obeyed Abraham and followed Abraham and supported Abraham through all of those journeyings that we read about in the book of Genesis. Behind Abraham was Sarah. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has a sermon on the the text here where uh, Peter is appealing to Sarah in verse 6, and Spurgeon says, I have no doubt 
that Abraham was the man that he was in part because of Sarah and that Sarah was the woman that she was in part because of Abraham and that together they were the couple that God was shaping them into as they journeyed through this world, not knowing where they were going with all the uncertainties, with all the difficulties, with all the difficult traveling and all the terrain that they had to cover, with all the trusting God that they had to do, with all the resting in the promises of a God that they didn't see and in promises that they never realized. They had to journey together and they became the people God wanted them to be as they journeyed together as pilgrims to that everlasting inheritance. And it fits. It fits if we read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 through the lens of everything else Peter has said in chapter 1 about Christians being exiles who are journeying to an everlasting inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, that is kept in heaven for you, who are being kept by faith through the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If we read this portion of scripture through that, and we realize, note what Peter says in verse 7, that we are heirs together, that husbands and wives are heirs together of the grace of life, journeying to that inheritance, and we are there together to support each other in the journey, we get why he goes back to Abraham and Sarah, the father and the mother of sojourning faithful believers from all time and all places going to the consummate glory. And I think that what we see tonight as we look at this, very natural division, first we see Peter giving a word to sojourning wives, and then secondly, giving a word to sojourning husbands. Well, notice what Peter does. He actually does two things when he comes to give a word to sojourning wives. First, he tells those wives to submit to their husbands. And secondly, he tells them to pursue true beauty before God. Now, you may wonder, why does, why does Paul tell wives to submit to their husbands even if they're disobedient and to win them without a word when they see your chaste conduct accompanied by fear? But he doesn't say, husbands, Dwell with your unbelieving wives gently and mercifully that you, without a word, when they see your noble courage and your humility and your meekness and your, your sacrificial love to them, will win them without a word. And I think the answer is simple, that in this day where Peter's writing in this area, there were a lot of believing women who did not have believing husbands. And just as Peter has said that if you live in the world and how can I be a Christian in a world that I don't like, in a place that I don't like it to be, the world is not what I want it to be, and yet I'm called to live as a faithful Christian in a place that I would change in every way if I could. And as Peter has basically told them that Christianity works in every society, in every situation, no matter whether we like it or not, Christianity works in North America in the 21st century, and Christianity works in Iraq and Syria under an ISIS regime in the 21st century. Peter would have a suffering people, a persecuted people, an ostracized people know that they can live the Christian life as sojourners in any situation, and he's told them that they can do that under an unjust government that persecutes them, and they can be good and godly citizens, and they can be upright toward the state. And he's told them 
that they can do that if they have an unjust and harsh, unbelieving master or employer. And I'm sure that the believers in this day had, had much more opposition from the state and from employers than any of us have ever known. And now I think what Peter's doing is he's saying that there are women, especially at this time, who had very harsh, unbelieving husbands who were disobedient to the word. And in this day, if a man was a believer, it was likely that his wife was a believer too. And so Peter is writing into a context in which these women have, have very difficult situations. And the question, I think, that may be lying under this, and John Calvin actually alludes to this, is that in the, in the minds of some of these godly women, they may have thought, I'm married to this unbelieving tyrant. I'm married to this man that mocks Jesus. I'm married to this man that makes my life difficult for being a Christian. Is it then my responsibility to leave him and to marry a kind and gracious and loving godly man in the congregation? And if that's indeed what Peter's saying, then it makes sense that what he's giving them is the remedy. He's giving them the remedy. He's telling them, here's how you remain a Christian in a difficult marriage. Here's how you remain a Christian in the marriage in which you wish it was different than it is. And notice what he says. He says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, I think that Peter, and maybe from marital experience and maybe just from reading the Bible, knows that the default, both for men and women, is to take the bull by the horns. Peter knows that the default is if my spouse has wronged me, I will take the bull by the horns and let him know that he's wronged me. And I will change him by cutting with my tongue. And I will change her by cutting with my tongue. Men have a propensity, a desire, and this goes back to the fall. Genesis 4, I take that sort of enigmatic statement that after the fall, um, the desire of the wife will be for her husband, his position, and that he will rule over her with a heavy hand, with an iron fist, that that's the perversion of how to respond in marriage. And I think that Peter is picking up on that idea, and he realizes that these women have been demeaned, and they've been spoken harshly to. Maybe they've been mocked for their faith in Jesus. They, they have a very difficult marriage. And the answer is not, get out and go find a man that will treat you the way you deserve to be treated. I want to say this tonight. This is very important. Far too many of our ideas about marriage come from conversations with people around us in this fallen world and from Hollywood than they do from the Bible. Far too many of our ideas about marriage come from the conversations of people around us and from Hollywood than they do from the Bible. I have heard I actually had a pastoral case years ago where a husband and wife that are now divorced um, had come to me and, and there had been infidelity and um, the wife said, well, I asked her, do you have any godly friends and what are they saying to you? And she said, well, they're saying whatever makes you happy. You need to do what makes you happy. Um, and it reminded me of the story of uh, that C.S. Lewis plays out in one of his short writings where Lewis speaks about the man that says that he wants to be 
happy. He wants to be with someone because he's happy. And Lewis says, if, if you only do things because you want to be happy, and if you leave your spouse for someone else because you want to be happy, then what will assure that person that you won't leave them to be happy for the next person and the next person and the next person? Because all it is is a self-pleasing. And so what Peter says here is that for godly wives who are united to Jesus, who are trusting the Lord Jesus, that they can and should be submissive to their own husbands. And there I don't think it means a doormat. Let me say that. The Bible never means be a doormat. There are times when a godly wife has to get help for she and her husband because he will not get help. Peter is not saying if your husband has some life-destroying thing going on, if your husband is abusive, you are to take it. He is not saying that. He is saying be a godly wife, honor your husband, respect him, speak well to him, and speak well of him. You know, I, I have, over the last four or five years, started to realize more significantly than ever the wisdom of the Proverbs with regard to the tongue. Um, the Proverbs say that a gentle tongue breaks a bone. A gentle tongue. We think the harsh word will cut through the bone. A gentle tongue breaks a bone. A soft answer turns away wrath. Peter is saying that wives should honor their husbands. They should be zealous to honor him. You know, when I was, um, when I was in my rebellious days, I remember my dad... Um, whenever he would talk to people, would only seek to say, tell them good things that were happening in my life. He would have his friends that he would say, I want you to pray for Nick. You know, he's not walking with the Lord, but he always sought, and with everybody I knew, my dad always sought to, to say things that he could commend things about other people that were true and that worthy of commendation. I think what Peter's saying is that wives ought to seek to honor their husbands in all those ways that they can be honored. If the husband's a good provider, even if he's not walking with the Lord, they should honor him for those provisions. They should honor him for every quality that God has put in him. And then secondly, notice that tied to that, Peter says that they are to pursue true beauty before God. He says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, what's interesting is that Peter does the same thing here that he does in the last two sections of application. He doesn't say, when he's talking about how the Christians can live as upright believers, trusting Jesus in the, in the civil sphere, he doesn't say, obey Caesar out of honor for Caesar. He doesn't say to servants and their masters, employees and their employers, obey your master for your master's sake. He says, obey Caesar out of love for God. Honor God. Obey Caesar because you want to honor God. Obey your masters, not with eye service as people pleasers, but as pleasing God. And notice what he does here with the wives. He says that they are to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Notice, which in God's sight is very precious. 
I have found that in every area of my own life and in every area of um, everyone's life with whom I have interaction, that whenever there is sin and division and discord and hostility and failure, there is one thing that is at the bottom of all of that. We have stopped to have hearts that are living quorum Deo, before the face of God. We have stopped to have hearts that live before the face of God. We've stopped saying, how can my actions be pleasing to God in this very difficult situation that I don't like? We've stopped saying, how can I honor this person that doesn't like me, not to people please them, but to please God? In fact, I think that we end up not doing it. I think that Uh, What Peter says here would inevitably end in wives being um, contentious with their husbands and wives being disrespectful and cutting with their tones and wives not wanting to adorn themselves with gentle and quiet spirits as soon as they realize that what matters most is what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks. What matters most is what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks. I love what Peter does. Peter takes um, this difficult marital situation and while he doesn't negate that the, the husband needs to be converted, that there needs to be change in the husband, he speaks to the party that is the victim, as it were. And he says the solution, the solution is to focus on your own heart before the Lord. Um, whenever I engage in marital counseling, and I know that it's much to the dislike of several of the couples that we talk with, that I try to focus on both parties because both come in hurling grenades at each other. Well, he does this and he does this and she does this. Well, you don't know that about her. And hours of grenade launching at each other. We know this, come on. We have the same hearts. (laughs) Hours of grenade launching. And I always try to say, you may have been the more offended of the two parties. 99% of the problems in this marriage may lie with your husband. But if there's even 1% you can work on, that you can focus on, where you can change and be more like Christ, it will fuel healing in the marriage. You know where I got that from? I got it from the Bible. I got it from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. God actually says, notice this, he actually says, is the only time, by the way, this is the only time in Scripture where evangelism is fueled without words. I've told you I hate that quote by St. Francis Assisi or whoever it was that attributed it to him. Preach the gospel always, use words only when necessary. It's a terrible quote. I mean, the apostles said, pray for us that we may open our mouth and boldly make known the mystery of the gospel because no one will be saved without it. But notice what Peter says. Peter says that when a godly wife who loves the Lord Jesus and is trusting him adorns herself, and she spends the majority of her time focusing on her heart before the Lord, adorning herself with gentleness and with quietness and with that beauty that with which godly women are adorned, they may, notice verse 1, that the husband may be one without a word by the conduct of their lives. I think that's remarkable. These men have heard the gospel. They don't need to be slammed with it. They've heard the scriptures. They don't need to be told constantly, incessantly where they're disobeying God. Peter says that without a word, they may be won by the godly conduct 
of their wives. And then notice that Peter goes, as we've already talked about, to the example of Sarah. Notice verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord or Master. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You know, I realize how countercultural this is. Um, and I realize how much the world and worldly churches, and probably even churches in our own denomination, there would be some that don't like this. I realize that. I've met many, many Christians that do not like this kind of language. But I want to tell you this tonight. The glory of what Peter's writing here is that it is built on, flows from, and demonstrates the wisdom of God. The living God has said that in some way, he desires to use the godly conduct of women even to win unbelieving and disobedient men to Christ. I think that's remarkable, that he desires to, to, to use that beautiful character and spirit of godly women to win hardened and hard-hearted and disobedient and I would even assume ruthless men. I thought tonight of another great example in the Old Testament of Abigail and Nabal. She didn't win her husband, but you saw the beauty of the spirit of Abigail. And it was so remarkable that while she didn't win her husband because God chose to harden his heart and he died in his coldness and his cold, stony heart, nevertheless, she became the wife of King David. She became one of the greatest benefits to one of the greatest kings that have ever walked the face of this earth. She was a woman of charity and grace and... She was a woman that made David more gracious. You know, it was the graciousness of Abigail. It was the mercifulness of Abigail that made David more gracious. David wanted to kill her husband for not giving bread and water. And then later in his ministry, when Shimei is throwing stones at David, David lets him live. I think that the, the example of the godly and beautiful spirit of Abigail affected one of the greatest kings that has ever walked the face of the earth. Secondly, I want us to consider what Peter says to husbands. And I noted at the outset that while it seems that the women get a lot more in this section, notice what Peter says to the husbands. He says that the husbands are to do three things. Number one, they are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Number two, they are to respect and to honor their wives. And three, they are to view their wives as an heir of Christ. Notice what Peter says in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, I think that what I say here could get me into a lot of trouble, and I'm not trying to get into a lot of trouble, so please, ladies, be gracious with me. But... We men need all the help we can get in dwelling in an understanding way. Our wives are emotional. Our wives are uh, busy. Our wives do more than we do. They accomplish more than we accomplish. They manage more at one time than we manage. They think differently than we think. They're, in every way, men and women are very different image bearers of God. In every way, God has wired us and he has formed us and shaped us very, very, very creatively and very uniquely and very complex, very complex. If men and women go 
and they go shopping for blinds. Men wonder whether those blinds are going to fit. Women wonder what they're going to look like. That's one just small example. Every time you go look for something, women think, how is this going to look? Men think, is this going to work? Can I afford this? And men need to learn to dwell with their wives with understanding. They need to be patient with their wives. They need to seek to understand what their wives' thoughts are on things. You know, one of the greatest practices that I have tried to form is going on walks with my wife because as I go on walks with Anna, those are the times that we talk about everything and those are the times that the things that I otherwise wouldn't understand about my wife or about how she thinks about things come out. And it's as we go and we walk and we talk and I listen to Anna and she responds back to a lot of my stupid ideas and I throw lots of things out and talk her ear off and then she responds that I begin to understand my wife more. And it takes lots of work. And you know, most men don't want to do the hard work of understanding their wives. And so we have that great challenge. Peter is challenging men and commanding men to live with their wives in an understanding way. I think that that includes gentleness. I think everything that is said about the woman in this passage is also true of the man. While Peter doesn't say that men are to have gentle and quiet hearts which are precious to the Lord, I think he is saying that men are to have gentle, patient, tender, kind, compassionate hearts toward their wives. Even when their wives say things that are crazy, even when their wives say things that they think they don't understand at all what they're talking about, they are to be gentle and kind and understanding and patient and tender, not sharp-tongued back to their wives. How quick it is, how many times I see men put their wives down. You don't know what you're talking about in public. That is a prime example of not dwelling with your wife with understanding. Men, if you are quick to put your wives down in public, stop. Dwell with your wife with understanding. Speak kindly and tenderly. Bear along with her. Lead her. Guide her. Be a good, patient, understanding leader to her. And then secondly, notice what Peter says. He says to respect her. This is a a beautiful thing that we see in this passage, and you might miss it if you just focus on those specific imperatives to each of the spouses. Notice that what Peter is essentially saying is that, that a godly marriage is a marriage in which the wife is saying, I want my husband to be honored even more than me, And the godly husband is saying, I want my wife to be honored more than me. Think about how the marriage would look if husband said, I want my wife to be honored more than me, and wives said, I want and and wives said, I want my husband, I may have just said that. Both parties saying, I want my spouse to be honored more than me. How marriages would look. What a witness that would be to our children. You know, I often wonder what my own sons will think as they grow up viewing their dad and mom's relationship because how we live in the home is a witness both to our children and to the church and to the watching world. Paul will actually say in Ephesians 5 that our marriages are to reflect that true and greater marriage of Christ in the church. Mutual love and respect and care and tenderness And then finally, and very quickly, I want to point out what I think is maybe the most important part of this section. Notice 
that we're told that as wives do their part, as husbands do their part, look at the result. The result is that the husband honors his wife, dwells with her in an understanding way, and realizes that she, with him, is an heir of the grace of life. Now, what you have to understand is that in the ancient Near East and in this time, in the, the first century under the, Roman, the rule of the Roman Empire, women did not inherit anything. You know, we have very, we have very narrow understandings of the world because we, have so many, we live on this side of women's rights, women voting, women's rights in court, women's rights actually favored over men in courts, in marriage, through divorce cases. We live on this side of that by 50, 60, 70 years. But the rest of human history, the women had no inheritance, no voice, almost no rights whatsoever. And here God is saying that husbands are to honor their wives and live with them in an understanding way, in a respectful way, because their wives were heirs with them of the grace of life. Jesus had said that these women were going to inherit everything one day. Christ had said that he had bestowed the totality of the everlasting inheritance on all of his sons and daughters. And I want to say this tonight, because this is, if you think of your marriage this way, it will change your marriage. God in his wisdom, in every one of those Christian marriages where he has brought a godly man and a godly woman together, has given us one of the greatest privileges that anyone ever has in this life, a privilege that even the Apostle Paul didn't know. And that is what it is to have a sojourning companion with you as you march together to Zion. I've often thought, what if every Christian marriage thought of their spouse that way? The spouse that God has uniquely chosen for me. The spouse that I had no hand in securing in that marriage. The spouse that through all the years of their own experiences and all the years of my experiences, God brought us together and he put us hand in hand on that narrow path that leads to glory. And he has said that you, dwelling together, are co-heirs. You are going to inherit together at the end of that journey. It's remarkable. When you come to meet the heavenly bridegroom, you are going to inherit together that everlasting inheritance. The journey is worth it. The journey is worth it. In fact, I actually think that in a sense what Peter is intimating when he appeals to Abraham and Sarah is that he's saying God makes the journey a little bit easier by giving us godly husbands and godly wives. He makes the journey a little bit easier. It's not good for man to be alone. Think of the burdens that Paul bore in ministry. Yeah, I know he said you can do more for the Lord if you're single. He said, I wish everyone could remain as me. But, it's, but the, the loneliness and the emptiness, and as we go through those challenges together, as we go through those trials, no one, not your pastor, not your close friends in church, no one will sustain you like your spouse will sustain you. 
And that's why I think it's incumbent on husbands to dwell in an understanding way with their wives, to dwell in a respectful way to their wives, because they need to view their wives as what they really are. In a sense, what Peter's saying is that husbands need to look at their wives differently than they naturally would look at them. They need to view them as their traveling companion to glory. And then notice what he says. He says that when we fail to do that, if we fail to do that, if wives fail to love their husbands tenderly, with a gentle and quiet spirit, if husbands fail to live with their wives in an understanding way and to respect their wives and to view them as a co-heir, the grace of life, notice Peter says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That, that along that narrow path to glory, should be husbands and wives praying together. Should be husbands and wives going to the Lord Jesus together. And what that says, I'm going to close with this. A godly wife and a godly husband who live like that are essentially saying there's someone more important than my spouse. They're essentially saying there's someone more important than my spouse. The godly wife is saying, There is a God in heaven, and there is a Redeemer who has purchased me with his blood, and he loves a gentle and a quiet spirit. It's precious to him. And a godly husband that dwells with his wife in an understanding way and seeks to respect her and honor her, and he views her as a a co-heir of the grace of life, says, there is a Redeemer who has redeemed my wife and has given her to me as a companion. And he wants us together to be looking to him, to be fixing our eyes on him, to be calling on him together. I'm convinced, let me say two things as we close tonight. I am utterly convinced that if all of us would go home and say, how am I doing with these things? And would set these things before us in our marriages, that we would have magnificently blessed marriages by God. Not in a Hollywood romance sort of way, in a spirit-filled, supernatural, eternal sojourning to glory sort of way. In a way, marriages that the world has no idea what marriage could be like. Unbelievers have no idea what marriage could be like. The most romantic tearjerker in Hollywood fizzles out It ends, it's shallowy, it is cheap. These are real and deep and substantive things. I want to say this to those of you who may not be married here, that this is what Peter would have you prepare for. I I, um, years ago had a friend when I was an intern at 10th Presbyterian Church, and he would often be jumping from one relationship to another to another, and always just seemed very discontent and I'm trusting the Lord and I'm praying for a wife and I just don't know how, how will I know that she's the right one? And he would always say, how, I just don't know that she's the right one. I just don't know that she's the right one. And he went to meet with Phil Riken and I'll never forget this. It, it impacted me so much. I had already been given the godly and amazing wife God has given me, but Phil Riken sat down with him and I said, how did it go? How'd your meeting go? And he said, well, I, I asked Phil, how will I know that this is the right woman for me. And Phil said to me, you need to worry about being the right man for the woman that God's going to put in your life. I thought, wow, that is a great turn in counsel. 
Not how do I know that this is going to be the right husband or wife for me. How am I going to be the right husband or wife for the man or the woman that God puts in my life? And 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 is where we go to find out what that starts to look like. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need every ounce of grace that we can get from you. We pray especially this evening that you would bless our marriages. We pray that you would give every husband in this place the grace to dwell with great understanding and care and compassion and gentleness and honor toward his wife. And we pray that you would give every wife in this place the grace to submit to their husbands and to honor their husbands and to seek to win their husbands, even if their husbands are disobedient to you with a gentle and a quiet spirit. Our God, we pray that you would remind us that all of us live before you and before your son, Jesus Christ, and that all of us are marching unto Zion as pilgrims and sojourners. Our Father, we pray that you would press these into our minds and hearts and that you would transform us by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.